Well, I want to welcome you. My name is Norm. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're a regular Westsider, it's great to have you here this morning. If you're a guest, whether you simply walked off the street, maybe you saw a sign outside or you were one of the receivers of some of the invitations that we put around in the downtown court, great, great having you on the back end of today's gathering. We'll give you some information if you want more information about this ministry. So just hold off until then. Um, and we'll give you some, again, more information, not just about this ministry, but what is also taking place on Easter Sunday, two days from now. But before that, I uh, just want to spend some time continuing to walk through a series that we began three Sundays ago that we've entitled The Violent Hope, The Final Days of Jesus. We called that series that we're in that because, as I said when we launched it, no collection of days, especially a collection over such a short period of time, combines such dramatic and contrasting realities. Uh, the days of Jesus, the final days of Jesus, are days that marry brutality with promise, revulsion with splendor, and violence with hope. We began this series by dropping in on Jesus in the upper room where he was with his disciples. And on that first Sunday, we looked at the foot washing of Jesus, specifically his washing of the disciples' feet. And what we talked about on that Sunday was that the foot washing of Jesus did a couple of things that we need to really consider. One, it was a symbol of his death. It looked forward to his death. The foot washing of Jesus pointed ahead to the to the reality of the ultimate washing that only comes by way of the cross. It was also a foot washing that displayed his love for us. And it was also a foot washing that's an example to us to follow. We stayed in the upper room a second week and we, we heard of a new command. A new command of Jesus given to his disciples. A new command to love one another as he loved us. It was a new command simply because it now is given in the shadow of the cross. Last week we doubled back to Palm Sunday and Matt Menzel walked us through that particular event, really beginning the first day of the final days of Jesus. We were placed in the midst of the crowd as they observed the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, an entrance that calls us to ask the question, do we praise Jesus for who he is or do we praise Jesus for who we want him to be? Today we jump ahead. So we, we, we began Thursday night. We stayed there. We jumped back to Palm Sunday. But now we're going to jump ahead to Friday. And as we do that, we need to recognize that we fly over some really significant events. We fly over Monday where Jesus cursed the fig tree and he cleansed the temple. Tuesday where he taught the lesson, learned from the fig tree, engaged in the controversies in the temple, and he predicted the future. We fly over Wednesday where he continued his daily teaching in the temple. It's on this day as well that we read of the Sanhedrin, the leadership of the day plotting to kill Jesus. And then Thursday where in the upper room that I just spoke of, the Passover meal is eaten. Where in the institution of the Lord's Supper communion, the Eucharist occurs. The disciples' feet are washed. Peter's denial is predicted, Judas is sent out, and soon thereafter, Jesus and now the remaining 11 disciples proceed to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. So as we journey on in the final days of Jesus, what we arrive in today is what we call 
Good Friday. But here's the obvious question, right? Obvious question on a day like this is what makes Friday good? I mean, what is so good about Friday? I, I realize why many thank God, maybe disingenuously today, for Friday, right? Thank God it's Friday. But when we say thank God it's Friday today or eat at TG, TGIFs, has nothing to do with this. Weekends here, or I'm going to get a plate of mushroom caps or whatever. But today, when we recognize this Good Friday, why is it good? I mean, what makes it good? I mean, think about it. It's a day that begins for Jesus, as I said, early in the morning in the Garden of Gethsemane. But his time there was fraught with anguished prayer. While his disciples succumb to sleep, while he literally sweats blood. It moves from there to betrayal, Judas's kiss. Never has such an affectionate act covered up such a treacherous heart. Judas wasn't alone, however. At the moment of his arrest, his disciples fled, some so anxious to get away that they literally leave garments behind. It was the betrayal of Judas met with the abandonment of the disciples. Jesus' arrest is followed by the most kangaroo of courts. The sentence, death on a tree. Never has one so innocent received such an unjustifiable and horrific penalty. Interestingly, the story of God which begins with a tree, where our first parents were cursed for eating its fruit, carries on here with another tree where on it Jesus takes our curse for us with ours removed. Some point out in the Bible that the story of God as recorded in the Bible begins with a tree, the tree in the garden, and it, it ends with a tree, a, a tree that's in the new Jerusalem, the tree that's in the kingdom of heaven, but you can't miss the tree, this tree, in the middle of the story. For this tree only makes sense of the other two. The sentence of Jesus led to beating And ripping, and whipping, and spitting, and punching, and tearing, and mocking, and gambling, and scourging, while cries of crucify him filled the air. The day moves soon after to carrying and stumbling, to nailing and piercing to declaring and crying, and finally to dying and burying. So in light of all of that, I ask again, what makes this day good? It's that question that I want to guide us for the rest of our time this morning. The answer to what makes Friday good comes because of what the cross specifically and Jesus' death on it does. And so I want this question, what makes Friday good, and the answer to it to guide the rest of our time, I'm going to try to convince you of that, that Good Friday is good because of the cross and Jesus' work, his act, his death on it. That's what makes it good, and that's what it does. Specifically, the first thing that it does is that it challenges 
Specifically, it challenges the cross does and Jesus' work on it, commonly held conceptions and perceptions of God. It challenges us, some of us, how, in how we may view God and it confronts those landing points that we may have settled on. Landing points that have perhaps concluded that God is indifferent or callous or laissez-faire or removed or emotionless or, or unknowable. As well, the cross sheds, cross sheds light on those all-important and rightly asked questions that challenge us too. Questions like, does God care? Is God, is God moved by what he sees? Does God know? The cross also challenges notions that too many have, that God may love others, but he couldn't possibly love me. But the cross challenges that conclusion head on. For the cross wasn't done for some, it was done for all. As Jesus himself declares in John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So Friday is good for the cross and Jesus' death on it. Challenges the things in our lives that need to be challenged. Providing answers and comfort as it does. Tied entirely into this, Good Friday is good secondly because of what it reveals. Specifically what the cross reveals. To be fair, the cross reveals many things we could spend as we have in the past. Many Sundays talking about what the cross itself reveals. But dramatically, it reveals a couple of things that I want to highlight this morning. One, it reveals the depth of God's love. And number two, the seriousness of our sin. And connected to that, the large debt that our sin incurs. As I touched upon in my previous point, the cross in most dramatic of ways shows us the depth of God's love for us. But in addition to that, it defines what true and perfect love is too. I just took you to John 3.16, but the same writer of John 3.16 wrote this in 1 John 3.16 when he, when he writes, By this we know love, we know love, that Jesus laid his life down for us. But coming out of this verse is what we so desperately need to hear yet resist so much in our culture today, and that is God doesn't love us firstly because we're lovable. I hate to break that to you. He doesn't love us because we're lovable. God loves us with a perfect love because of who he is. And even though we resist that on a first hearing, we actually want that to be for it means that not only can't you do anything to earn his love, but that you can't do anything to remove it or separate yourself from it either. Other than not receiving it. Nothing can separate you from the love of God offered in Christ Jesus. So that's what the cross reveals. Number one, it reveals the depth of God's love. We know what love is because of the cross. But secondly, it also reveals the seriousness of our sin and the debt it incurs. See, Westside and friends and guests, love drove Jesus to the cross. But it was our sin that nailed him there. Yes, Jesus died for you and me because he loves us, but Jesus also died for you and me because our sin needed to be died for. And only Jesus, a perfect, spotless, 
cosmic and divine sacrifice could die for it. Paul brings both God's love and the seriousness of our sin together when he writes this. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We see Paul bringing these two expressions, these two revelations that the cross gives us, reveals to us the depth of his love and the seriousness of our sin and how they come together, they co-join at the cross. How much does God love us? Look at the cross. How serious is, serious is our sin? Look at the same cross. Adding further light to this, Paul writes in Colossians 2, and you who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this. What's that this refer to? The record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This. This record with its demands. He set aside, nailing it to the cross. As one writer writes, I don't know who it is. I just have the quote written down and I don't know where it comes from. He or she writes... Jesus' death is a ransom, paid to a punishment that we deserve, voluntarily borne by another who is innocent. It is a triumphant nailing up of a canceled invoice. Love displayed and the seriousness of sin displayed too on the cross, it's revealed there. But I have to wonder if we've gazed deeply enough at either of those two. At times like Easter, new, newspapers are apt to uh, write stories of religion or faith or churches or what have you. Uh, there was an article that I came across literally at 3 in the morning this morning in the sun. It's on page A3. And a couple of things that were highlighted in there, one that in BC there is a high rate of acceptance of the concept of karma. 61% of all British Columbians say they believe in karma. Just to quote the, the, the author, or the, the reporter of this particular article, article, he writes, at a broad level, karma suggests that people will suffer for their unethical acts and be rewarded for their virtuous behavior. Informal or more specific Buddhist teaching about karma, it stipulates that a person's moral behavior determines how she or he will be reincarnated as either a human insect or something else. Now up to that point, I wasn't really that surprised. I wasn't surprised about the belief of those in BC that believe in karma. 61% didn't actually seem that high to me. I thought more would actually believe in karma. It wasn't the 61% that surprised me. What surprised me was that in the same article, it said that 65% of professing Christians in BC believe in karma too. A higher number. Interestingly, is that the concept of karma is the antithesis of grace. 
it is absolutely juxtaposed against grace. See, karma states, I get, good or bad, I get what I deserve. The cross states, receive that which you don't deserve at all. Additionally, a belief in karma not only exhibits a low view of God's love and grace, I only get what I deserve, but it also exhibits a low view of the seriousness of our sin. It's a belief that our good acts, so to speak, have the power to remove the penalty incurred by our bad ones. If I do more good, better next life. Or maybe better my life will be now. The cross of Jesus says in response, all our bad acts will be wiped clean by God's grace with the same grace that wiped them clean, carrying us forward with grace upon grace. That's what the cross reveals to us. But the cross also shows us that the seriousness of our sin and what it incurs is a penalty that you and I can never repay. As someone said, if you committed every day hereafter to one of good works, at the end of your life, you would be no closer to heaven than you are today. As an aside, and this is not meant to be a coming out against karma, but as an aside, that's, I'll back that off. Yes, it is. But I'm not going to spend my time just there. But as an aside, I think the popularity of karma comes because it allows people to remove God and place themselves at the center. They're in charge. But in addition, it also reveals our proclivity towards religion. See, make no mistake, karma or any worldview like it is the epitome of religion. How good or bad my life is rests upon my works is the definition of religion. We can't think that removing God or not entering a building means we're not religious. And besides, we haven't really removed God at all. We've simply replaced him with another, namely us. So we're the center. Remove God. I'm in charge. Our proclivity. We're, we love religion. We don't like the word. We love it. We love it. I'm in charge. My good will outweigh the bad. Everything will be hunky-dory for me. That's religion. So Friday is good because of what the cross challenges, number one, and reveals, number two. Here's another. It's good because of what the cross offers. As I've hit in some of my previous points, the cross offers an exchange. An exchange of what? Well, in exchange from slave to free, let me give you some more. From death to life, from wrath to grace, from sinner to saint, from lost to found, from old to new, from dark to light, from orphan to adopted, from shepherdless to shepherded, from enemy to friend, from deaf to hearing. I got more. Let me give them to you. From blind to seeing, from lame to walking, from scarlet to white, from hurt to healed, from sick to well, from poor to rich, from wretched to righteous, from guilty to forgiven, from hell to heaven. It's a good exchange. But for a true exchange to take place, someone has to take what is ours in exchange for what is theirs. Someone did. 
and his name is Jesus. Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin. And he took our slavery and our death and our wrath and our old and our dark and our enmity and he exchanged it and he gave us his righteousness. As I've talked about before, all of those things that we bring to the table, he amputated, he cut off. And all that he brought to the table, meaning his righteousness and his perfect life, he imputed unto us. Amputation, imputation. It's an exchange. And that's what we see on the cross. That's what makes the cross, makes Good Friday good because of what it offers us. Perhaps nowhere is this offer of exchange more evidence than in the two who hung on each side of Jesus on that first Good Friday. Those two thieves we read, one of our readers read about them just a few minutes ago. As I said earlier in this series, we are the thieves. We're the players in the story of the final days of Jesus. We are the thieves. The question is, which thief are you? Jesus in the middle, two thieves on each or either side of Jesus. Each thief saw and heard the same thing, but one got harder while the other got softer. A thief on Jesus' left, another on his right, but two entirely different responses to what was being offered. I remember a quote that Matt Menzel shared with me some time ago. The quote states, the first criminal wanted deliverance but not forgiveness, while the second wanted forgiveness but expected no deliverance. To put it another way, one wanted to live longer while the other wanted eternal life. There is a difference, by the way, between living forever and eternal life. The question is, what do you want? See, the offer is yours. The cross offers us something, exchange. The offer is yours, but the choice is yours too. Which one will you choose? Two final reasons in terms of what makes the cross and Jesus' death on it good and what makes Friday good. The first of those final two is that it satisfies. It satisfies. You know, while Jesus was on the cross, and we went through a series last year, he, the Gospels record seven statements of Jesus. One of the more well-known statements of Jesus was, it is finished. It's an interesting statement because his resurrection hadn't yet occurred. He states it at the end of his time on the cross, but as we read in different places in the scriptures, especially places like 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if the resurrection did not take place, then we would still be in our sins. We would be people most pitied. Our faith would be worthless. So why does he utter it? Well, because so certain, in fact, was his coming resurrection that he is able to declare a finished work at this preceding moment in time. What we also need to recognize about this statement, it is finished, is that it was certainly a cry declaring an end to his life and his torture, but far more significantly, it was a cry of completion. It was also a, tri a cry of triumph. It was also a cry of fulfillment. Jesus had satisfied all that he came to do. All that his father called him to say and do, he said and did. 
But here's why this is vital for us. As we look at the satisfaction of the cross is that his cry, it is finished, is to be our cry too. It's a cry calling us to stop attempting supplemental work. It, all that was required for our salvation is finished. It's finished. It's fully satisfied. It's done. Now to be clear, it's not saying that works are wrong. It's not that type of cry. God is not against works. He's simply against our works being done as an add-on or a replacement of the work of Jesus. We are saved by grace, not works. It is finished. However, the satisfaction of the cross and what it brings not only cleans up our past and helps us in our present, but assures us of our future too. It's why Paul can write this in Philippians 1.6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Why is Paul so sure? Why is he so sure? Well, he is so sure because in the finished work of Jesus, we are already complete. In Jesus, you're complete. It's finished. When, G, when, when God the Father looks down on you while you're in Christ, he sees completion. It's finished. With the only thing between now and the full realization of that completion being time. It's finished. It's satisfied. Stop working for your salvation and walk in the grace and the grandeur of the finished work of Jesus that he's given you. Satisfied. This brings us to the final reason why Friday is good. It's good because what the cross and Jesus work on, it sustains. Jesus is called a lot of things in the Bible. Shepherd, Savior, Messiah, Lord, But in addition to all of those, he is also our sustainer. The author of Hebrews writes that Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. Paul adds this in Colossians 1 when he states that Jesus is before all things and in Jesus all things hold together. He's our sustainer. And the cross demonstrates that he is our sustainer. It's what makes Friday good. If I had the time, I would talk about some of the specifics of how Jesus sustains us. If I had the time, I would talk about how Jesus has promised to sustain us. He said, I will never leave you or forsake you. If I had the time, I would talk about how Jesus has the power to sustain us. I can do all things through Jesus who gives me strength, Paul writes. If I had the time, I would talk about how Jesus has the provision to sustain. As he promised, if we seek first his kingdom, all of these things will be added unto us. If I had the time, I would talk about how Jesus is pleased to sustain. If I had the time, I would talk about how his very presence sustains us. I'm with you always to the very end of the age, but I don't have time. But I'd love to talk more about how he has promised and how he has power and provision and he's pleased and his very presence is with us forever. But I don't have time to talk about all of that today. So let me say this simply. That which was displayed and finished at the cross is the assurance of the ongoing sustaining power of Jesus in our lives today. How do I know Jesus is all-powerful? How do I know Jesus and his promises are sure and that he has the provision to sustain us today? The cross is the answer. 
as Paul argues in Romans 8, and he really lasers in in verse 32, he asks the question, if Jesus died for us, this act of death, if he died for us while we were sinners, what won't he do for us now if we're friends? This greatest act, enmity, we're now friends. He sustains us if we go forward. The cross reveals this to us. It's our hope and our assurance. The finished work of Jesus on the cross, what Jesus gives us and shows us on the cross. So as I close, West Side, what makes Friday good? Well, just to review with you, what makes Friday good is, first of all, we put these on the screen, what it challenges. What it challenges, it challenges conceptions and perceptions about God, what it reveals, what it offers, offers an exchange, what it satisfies, it is finished, and then finally, what it sustains. I resist using acronyms, for I never want to give the impression that things are always simple and clean. It's that obvious, isn't it? It's that obvious. However, as we walk with Jesus from the violence shown on Good Friday to the ultimate hope of Easter Sunday, I couldn't resist using one today as we go into a time of response, the cross. I was so excited about that, by, but I thought it would be more of a surprise to you. You really disappointed me. My hope is that as you continue through this Good Friday and you think about why it's good, that this is perhaps a helpful, helpful tool to you. Um, let me pray. Then we're going to go into a time of response. Jesus, I am, I am truly, uh, truly thankful um, for what is ours because of your work. I truly am. And as we go into a time of response, my, my great desire is that this would be, a, I pray this all the time, but this would be a truly pleasing time to you and a truly worshipful time for us with hearts that maybe taste in deeper ways this morning what you have done for us. What you took and what you gave. Who we are now in you. What you offer us. What you came and accomplished. All of those things. But also not just looking back, but looking at our lives now and as we move forward, that that grace that you extend on the cross is our grace day by day by day by day. It's a grace that saves, but it's a grace that sustains. It's a grace that strengthens. It's a grace that continues. That all of the promises are ours in your grace. That our lives and, and the rewards we look forward to one day aren't dependent upon what we do or don't do. They're dependent upon what you've given us. We want to be people of grace. We want to be people of grace. 
And any work thereafter is simply an act of worship. Just an act of worship. So I pray in this time of response as the band leads us in song, as we worship you, I just pray that your spirit would rest heavy on this time. That it would be a sweet time for us, for anyone here who is hearing about this, maybe in ways they've never heard about this before. Maybe they've never really heard the Easter story and what Jesus did on the cross and why he did, that it was more than an example. It was a, it was a sacrifice. I pray that your spirit would move in them, that they would go from dark to light, that your spirit would invade and interrupt their lives, and they would see the glory of Jesus today and come to you today. I just pray for that. Would you be so gracious today to do that? And so I pray for these things. In Jesus' great name, amen.